hey, can everybody hear me? So started off a little early today because I'm trying to use some equipment that Colin sent me. Did not have success last time, but it appears that it's working this time. So you should be able to hear me a little bit better. Um, and we'll have uh, hopefully a pretty interesting discussion today. We may have a, uh, a guest who's um, going to talk through some things with me as well. I've invited uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, uh, the author of Chaos Monkeys and a former Facebook executive, uh, to drop by also. And he and I might talk um, basically about some of these sort of wide ranging issues about internet censorship, maybe the consequences of what happened uh, at Twitter with Jack Dorsey leaving and then the, the completely crazy development of today already where they um you know sort of right away um as soon as as dorsey's out they make a, a pretty significant move uh a change to their uh image policy and i'm already hearing all kinds of crazy stories about what uh, what the results of that have been uh people have people both in media and in tech and i've reached out to a bunch of people today about that um, have varying interpretations about what that might mean but the general uh impression is that it's probably it's probably not a good thing it's gonna give the company a, um an ability to make decisions about not that they weren't already doing this but but a, a way to eliminate certain kinds of content that's going to massively enhance the um, the power of tr traditional credentialed media. Uh, it's going to force independence and small time uh, journalistic operators to probably sell their wares or sell their footage uh, even more through big companies um, who won't have to worry about getting uh, taken off a platform for putting up an unapproved image. Uh, a couple more things I wanted to say just before starting this 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 talk. One of the reasons I wrote a piece yesterday in Substack about um, about uh, Dorsey's leaving is that uh, Dor Dorsey's somebody who was a little bit different from other tech executives in that he reached out to other figures in the media um yeah i don't think i'm it's a huge surprise but including me over the years uh basically just to solicit advice and to get feedback on what concerns might be about things like speech or censorship and that doesn't mean that that, that he always listened necessarily but or that he always implemented those ideas but it's it's very very unusual sometimes you'll hear from um, a company and they, they talk to you because they want you to see their point of view a little bit better. That's not what was going on in this case. And then sort of secondarily, uh, it became evident, I think, kind of in the last year or so that uh, Dorsey had some uh, some issues in terms of he was agonizing over some of the changes that were going on. He was being pulled in many different directions there are a lot of people within the company clearly who were very in favor of doing things like taking Trump off Twitter, which of course a lot of people are in favor of, but 
um, he wasn't sure about that. I think that contrasted with the original mission of the company. So um, what what are the consequences of all this? Where is all is all this headed? Um, that's sort of the idea behind this discussion and um, interested in getting into it with all of you. And when when I do spot Antonio, I'll uh, I'll uh, try to bring him in as well. So uh, let's let's start. And I think, Michael, you're up first. Hello. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I wanted to no, uh, propose a kind of a long-term solution to the problem. Is that is that on topic? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I've heard people bat around the concept of an Internet Bill of Rights. And as a libertarian, I'm like, okay, it's not really a right to use somebody else's platform and so on. And so I tried to think about this a little bit, and I... You know, I think there could be a solution. It would be hard to do, but um, what you would do is establish sort of, you know, like a service mark or something that we're a, this is this is what it means to be a free speech friendly platform. And you would have things like, you know, your right to keep your network. Like, you don't have a right, obviously, to keep using Twitter's, I don't think, anyway, to keep using Twitter's servers. But suppose you've built a platform of, you know, a hundred thousand followers or whatever. And then they, they're like, you know what? We've changed our mind. We don't want you here anymore. That's a, you know, it's kind of an immoral, in my opinion, bait and switch. And I think a lot of people could get behind that idea. And if there was a, a standard like, you know, and you could, I guess you could use the phrase internet bill of rights and, and then just popularize it and have a standard that says like, look, if you want to, if you want somebody off your platform, you need to give them a reasonable time, maybe a time that scales with the number of users they have to communicate to their users where you're moving to, you know, so that you're still able to talk to just your user. Maybe you shut them down so that the rest of the public can't hear them. But they can keep communicating to their users and say, look, I'm moving over to, you know, parlor or I'm taking all my stuff mm -hmm. onto Substack or something. And, you know, it would, you would just have a few standards like this that would kind of stop this thing of the, you know, the network, the network effect bait and switch, I think is one of the biggest problems. Like they, they let you have your quote free speech for a long time. You, you put a lot of effort into it and then they just shut it down. Like it's just, you know, it's obviously wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that one. In fact, um, it's funny because one of the one of the first uh, stories that I wrote about this whole content moderation uh, censorship era uh, was a story that Rolling Stone ended up titling it uh, "Who Will Fix Facebook?" Uh, I think because they were well, that's a separate issue. But anyway, um, this was after Alex Jones got tossed off the internet, and Facebook. Um, had sort of willy-nilly deleted hundreds of sites, including a whole bunch of them that were basically independent uh, news organizations. Uh, they were like small uh, independent sites with names like the Free Thought Project uh, or Police the Police, Get Involved, V for Voluntary, um, 
And some of these sites had spent, had not only, you know, you talk about the, the bait and switch. Some of them had not only been on there for a long time and had, and had come to use the platform and depend on it as a source of revenue. They had also poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into advertising revenue um, to try to build up their follower base on Facebook. And then, you know, in a, in a heartbeat, they're gone. Like, you know, there's no, and there's no contract law that specifies that they can't do that. Uh, so, so that, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know how you would enforce something like that. Um, but I think that that's certainly, that's certainly a, a, a huge problem because one of the things that happens, uh, you know, on the speech level is people become, um, they become financially dependent on staying on a, a platform. So they become afraid of uh, being kicked off which will lead them to staying far, far away from wherever they think the line is, uh, which results in having less and less interesting discussions, debates, uh, less and less interesting material with this new image policy. Probably they're going to be, there's going to be some hesitation to put up live images. Um, there's already some of that, you know, with YouTube and, um, because people don't want to lose their access to the platform. And that's not, that, that's not right. Like, as, as you say, it, it, people end up, they, they, they build up a dependency and a relationship with their audience, and then they, they can have it taken away in a second. So it would be great if there's some kind of mechanism to make sure that, that people aren't in jeopardy. I mean, it's, it's not like a massive human rights violation, but it's certainly concerning. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not nothing at all. Um, Anyway, uh, but thanks for the question. I think that's a, that's a really good one. Yeah. Thanks for taking it. Yeah, Alex Jones was the 800-pound canary. Absolutely. In, in and, and, mm-hmm. when, when, when he went, it was like it was curtains for so many other people that, for all we know, could have made a huge difference by now. But, but they're, they're just, like, gone. It's, uh, it's very chilling. Well, the thing about the Alex Jones thing that was amazing was – was how many people who I would have thought of as sort of die die hard ACLU speech rights types who were suddenly very quiet because of course it's Alex Jones he's he's a completely t- t- to those folks politically unsympathetic character and and I get that but uh, you had to look at the bigger picture which was you know here here was a bunch of bunch of companies that were kind of acting in concert to to get rid of a person. Um, which is a completely new way of doing business and, you know, in, in, in the speech world. Now, Jones just lost a big lawsuit, which is traditionally the way that we dealt with, um, you know, people who said things that weren't true or that were harmful or damaging in some concrete way. And it, but it, it took too long, according to, according to the public at the time. So they decided on this new method. And, and I think they, they, they made it that go down easier by, by focusing on, uh, on Jones first. So, um, but uh, anyway, th- uh, th- thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Okay, I think David's up next. Hey, Matt. How's it going? How are you doing? Thanks good, for coming. Good. Yeah. Um, well, I really enjoyed your, your latest Substack, and so I couldn't resist calling in, even though sometimes I feel like maybe I should not be doing this on, you know, on my own platform. I should only be, you know, giving other people the chance to do it. But 
<laughs> but I really enjoyed your last Substack. I thought it was really thought provoking about you know how much has changed um, you know during the, you know Jack Dorsey's reign as CEO, and you kind of in, mm-hmm. in that piece you kind of point to where we were at the beginning when he was CEO and where we are at the end, and you know. Uh, I, you know, probably most notably Twitter's mission. You know, they used to be, uh, as you as you quoted, the free speech wing of the free speech party. Now they're engaged in broad based censorship. Uh, but you also kind of pointed out, you know, how much the user experience has degraded on Twitter. It used to be a very pleasant experience to you know go surfing on Twitter and find news. Now it's kind of a cesspool of invective and um, you know, and sort of roving tweet mobs looking f- to you know, cancel people. Um, and and you, know, you also people. point out how much <laughs> yeah. the, the media itself yeah. has changed, you know, that they used to be defenders mm-hmm. of free speech. And now they're more like hall monitors or hall police who are, you know, looking for the next, uh, you know, person to cancel. So anyway, I, I, I really love the piece and, um, you know, got me thinking about a lot of this stuff. I guess that, that maybe the, the, the place where I would push back this is where I want to talk to you about is you, you seem to have a little bit of a soft spot for Dorsey in the piece. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And as the person who's presided over this decline or, or change in Twitter's mission, I mean, don't you feel like he should bear some blame for it? Um, now, I mean, I, I understand that there are things to like about Dorsey and I have a soft spot for him as a business, as a founder, as a business person, I think he's a brilliant product designer and you know it's incredible that he created not just one but two mega successful companies was running them at the same time and i agree that he seems to be thoughtful and and he he will engage on these issues and he will admit mistakes which is very rare you know like after the whole uh, backlash to them removing trump from the platform he admitted certain mistakes but of course that decision was never unwound um so he certainly engaged in hand wringing over these free speech issues. Um, and, and so in that sense, better than a lot of these CEOs who just summarily cancel people without thinking twice about it. But at the end of the day, he has ultimately given in to the mob of Twitter employees who, you know, want to increasingly, uh, bring the hammer down, you know, to censor more and more people on the platform. Uh, he was the CEO, the buck stops with him. Isn't he ultimately responsible for, what's happened at Twitter, you know, if not our, our culture, I don't blame him for what's happened in the larger media. So I guess I'll turn it back to you and, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's a totally legitimate question. And, um, you know, frankly, this is, this is kind of like a a little bit of a fourth wall question about how to deal with reporters, which is um, if you talk to them, if you engage with them uh, somewhere in the back of their minds, they're going to, they're, it's going to be harder for them to, uh, you know, beat the crap out of you in print. And I, I, I actually fight against that. I mean, all, all the years that I covered Wall Street, um, there were a number of uh, executives from some of the banks uh, who'd call me up and talk to me about this and that. And I think they were, what they were trying to do is sort of plant the seed in my head that when I was writing about X bank, that I was really writing about a person that I knew and therefore, I would I wouldn't be so rough on them, and that's a trap that you can fall into as a reporter. Like you, you know these people personally, or you, you're, or at least, um, you know, you've seen some willingness of executives from a certain company to answer your questions, or engage, or take you seriously, and that can that can have an impact on how you look at things. Um, 
I think, you know, with me, for me, Dorsey was, was, uh, it was just, he was just different from the other tech companies, you know, in the way that he personally handled um, some of these controversies, which I guess can be illusory. Like it doesn't really matter in the end. Ultimately, as you say, the company is what it is. Uh, The experience on Twitter definitely degraded significantly during the Trump years. As you say, it used to be like kind of a, a cool, fun experience. I used to go on there and just pass the time kind of sort of bullshitting with people and talking about whatever the funny political story of the day was. Uh, and it was, it was a fun, it was a fun sort of place to hang out. Then from 2016 on, it became, um, this really, uh, unpleasant place that was full of not only paid trolls and, and, uh, and bots and people who clearly had agendas of some kind, um, but also there were these sort of regular campaigns that were designed to enforce conformity. Now I had seen that behavior among journalists, like for instance, on the campaign plane where they would sit around talking uh, openly about like which candidate they, they were, they were going to hit hard and which ones they weren't, which ones they thought should be taken seriously and which ones they shouldn't. But now all this was like sort of publicly formalized and ritualized um, on Twitter you know, if if anybody got out of line and, and was counter narrative about a politician they didn't like, you, you you heard about it instantaneously from your peers, which was really unpleasant. Um, you know, for me particularly, the Russiagate story was really an unpleasant time and, and turned me off to Twitter a lot. And yeah, the Dorsey presided over all of that, and he didn't stand up to the members of Congress who who were asking for more and more controls on, on the platform. And yeah, that's on him. So, um, you know, I might, I might've soft pedaled him a little bit and, uh, and that's, that's probably, that's, that's just a, a thing that happens sometimes you got to guard against it, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's absolutely a fair question. I mean, Jack did have one bright shining moment at one of those congressional hearings. You may remember which, which one it was, but he was being kind of grilled by, you know, one of the the members of the committee who was attacking him for what they always do, which is he wasn't censoring enough. And if it almost seemed like he snapped and, uh, uh, you know, one moment and said, listen, I think it was a Senator um, as opposed to a Congressman, you know, if, if, if you feel like you want to take down more content than we do, well then why don't you go for it and pass the law? He's like, Oh wait, you can't because the first amendment prohibits it. Uh, (laughs) And it was like, I remember like Mike Solana wrote a column saying, hooray, you know, Jack Dorsey is our like secret defender of the First Amendment and free speech. And, you know, it felt like for one moment that it's like, wow, he like really gets it. Um, But, you know, it didn't really change anything. And, um, you know, maybe to show kind of how low our standards were, um, you know, in a way, it's, it's the Jack Dorsey that we wish we had. I mean, if if we had one founder CEO of a major social network who could have been pushing back that way over the past five years. I mean, don't you think that could have made a huge difference? And and it's not just him. I mean, Zuckerberg kind of went down the same path of after the whole Russian disinformation, you know, smear against Facebook, instead of fighting back on that and pushing back on that by making the argument that whatever campaign 
took place on Facebook. It was literally a droplet of impressions compared to the ocean of impressions that users see. It didn't, it was incidental. It didn't make any real difference. You know, that was sort of the, he should have stood up and, and fought that narrative. Instead, they sort of apologized and, and, and thereby verified that myth and made it fact. Um, and, and then that led to, like you pointed out in the piece, I mean, it started with um, a, 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 the need to censor started with the idea that we had to suppress first Russian disinformation, then all disinformation, and then Trump himself, and then from Trump to, you know, anybody. Now it's a whole galaxy of things. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and, and you're right. And, and, and I think, ironically, a lot of that had to do, a lot of the cowardice of these executives had to do with Twitter because um, it was a social thing. Like, I, I think a lot of these people, even after they become billionaires, the thing that they, they, they can't buy is social standing. Uh, and they were they were afraid of being kicked out of the, you know, sort of the Eden of center left acceptance or whatever it is. And a, a lot of their instincts to kind of tell these people to go screw, which they do on all kinds of pol- uh, policy questions, um, you know, they became cowed when this uh, this issue came up. You know, you saw, remember Mark Zuckerberg was pretty vocal about not wanting to be a news organization or not wanting to have, be an editor of the universe in 2016. And then they, they sort of rapidly changed their tune. Now, some of that had to do with some threats about tax and regulatory policy that, um, you know, were waived at these companies. But I think a lot of it was just, they were, they, they didn't want to be piled on. Like nobody wants to be piled on, uh, on social media as, you know, Trump enabling villains or, or whatever, or Russia enabling villains. And, yeah, they, they buckled uh, rather than standing up, and it would it would have been a good thing if they had done that. But um, yeah, Andy. yeah, absolutely, yeah, I agree. Well, listen, I'll I'll get out of the the way now so that we can ask some questions. But uh, <laughs> great piece, great great talk to you, and really happy to have you on the platform. Cool, thanks a lot, David. I appreciate it. Thanks. All right, bye. bye. And by the way, that was the. Uh, that, that was David Sachs, by the way, who's, who, who's excellent creation this whole thing is. Uh, so he, uh, uh, he's speaking as someone who uh, ho- hopefully he follows his own lead uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. So uh, let's see who, who's, um, who's, who's next. I think we have Rob next. Hey, Matt, can you hear me? Yep. Hey, so I think it's um I think it's hard right now to talk about Twitter and censorship without bringing up Gab and what Gab has become. Um, the Gab is now like the truly unmoderated version of Twitter with minimal rules, and it's turned into kind of a a shit show, you know. So, um, do you think something like Gab is inevitable when you take away all moderation, or is that just to use a basketball metaphor? What happens when the more popular platforms kind of force people to the baseline you know is that why gab became what gab <laughs> became because more more left-leaning views were uh you know allowed on twitter where you know they kind of forced the right over to something like i mean parlor's a parlor's a walk in candy land compared to gab um so yeah i just i'm wondering like how do right. you uh, you know i like the idea of what you said in the article that like you know, we have Twitter's an opportunity for a really cool candidate, a non-corporate candidate to get directly in touch with people. Unfortunately, Trump was the first one through that gate. So we kind of got stuck with him. 
and the negative side effects of it. But like, is something like Gav inevitable? A truly unmotivated platform is going to turn into the most extreme views. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, like, I I think the um, I, I, it, obviously it's not uh, an, an easy question. You know, what what are these? What should these executives be doing about content moderation issues? It's not simple, right? Um, but I think the the overall the broader uh, thing you have to ask yourself is like what what was the strength of the inter- internet originally? What was cool about it? What made it a, a you know uh, amazing and and potentially revolutionary? Uh, was the fact that it was sort of unruly and wild and that was what was so uh, cool about it you could find anything on there and um yeah there are parts of the internet that are an absolute sewer there's no question about that uh you know you have everything everything that's disgusting that the human mind can possibly think up is is on there somewhere um however i don't know what the solution is um if you're going to try to legislate that out aggressively uh you're also inevitably giving somebody um the reins of this very very powerful tool and what they're going to do inevitably is do exactly what i watched uh political journalists do for years is is they're going to galvanize their um, authority and and put their thumb on the scale in favor of um, establishment politicians and corporate interests and all those things. And that takes away, I think, some of the in, the inherently interesting uh, and democratizing parts of the internet. So it's, it's a, it's a balance. Like you have to have some, to- some tolerance for, for some grossness um, in order to get what's cool about it. You know, to quote Beavis and Butthead, yeah, you gotta, you gotta listen to the part that's yeah, yeah. before you get to the part that's cool. And I, I also think that your your point about would Gab be Gab if Twitter had not, you know, sterilized itself to, so much? And I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think so. You know, honestly, I really don't. I mean, it's. It, I think they've they've kind of selected each other out in those directions. So, um, but I really, I re- what I really worry about overall is is not that like the entire internet is going to become gab that's less worrisome to me than the entire internet becoming under some kind of centralized control like, you have to like, i think you have to weigh what's worse you know and um you know for, for for me it's clearly the second thing uh because we know what that outcome is going to be um yeah, there's going to be some ugliness if if you if you don't regulate it enough. But I'd rather err on that side than the other side. I think. Yeah, you just assume people will. You know, the adults in the room can can kind of self filter and scroll past stuff they don't want to see. But I mean, even even in the '90s when I was growing up, I was just a teenager, and even younger than that, middle school. And I don't even remember running into half the stuff that you run into now in the darkest corners of the internet and in chat rooms and stuff like that. So I think in general, the society has kind of moved in. A little bit more of an extreme thing and maybe that's because of the bots and all the stuff pushing us towards that but um yeah i appreciate you talking about it man absolutely yeah no no thanks thanks for the question i think it's a good one so um here we go uh i think i think alex is next oh hi there matt um hey alex how's it going 
Oh, good, good. Thanks for taking the call and uh, greetings from sunny San Diego. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm jealous. It's, uh, it's snowing yeah. around. So. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sorry, the previous caller kind of stole, uh, I shouldn't say stole my topic. He got it in first uh, about <laughs> talking about Gab and, and going the exact opposite direction. But I'd like to take it a step further and just try to understand why in a world you know, let's let's look at blockchain and, and and cryptocurrency, where the whole idea is decentralization. There is no platform. There is no intermediary. Why do we need a platform for people to express their ideas? Um, why can't we have a comp- now? I, I think there's a difference between talking about a decentralized platform for communications or for expression or broadcast media and identity. And I think that's where the challenge has been with Twitter is with the bots and everybody creating fake profiles and who knows who is who else. That's another problem. But it just Mm -hmm. seems to me like the the, the real solution is eliminate the idea of a platform. Yeah, I, I think I think you're onto something. I think that's probably where things are headed is to kind of make it I mean, I heard somebody describing it as being more, more like email, right? It's like, it's not a, it's not a centralized, um, top down construction. Uh, there's, there wouldn't be any bureaucracy. Uh, I think it's going to ultimately have to be something like that in order, in order to be what the original idea of something like Twitter was allegedly, you know, designed to be. Uh, because you know, what's happening now is 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 just a complete perversion of what of what communication is supposed to be. You hear about these, uh, you know, when I when I when I first started doing these stories, you know, you hear about Facebook having these gigantic what they called I guess they're called deletion centers in um, uh, in Germany uh, where they go through and look for you know content that violates. Uh, you know the the terms of um, terms of service for for the company. Uh, I mean, there's no way to, that that it's um, that it makes any sense at all to have armies of over a thousand people pouring through people's messages in search of wrong think or errors or whatever it is, and have that be anything like uh spontaneous communication it's just it, it 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 starts to warp the whole idea of of you know what talking to each other is all about once once you start having something like that um and you know to, and twitter twitter has become you know really really difficult to negotiate in that respect it's just a a, a sort of never ending sea of warnings and labels and um and, and you know, shading you this in this direction or that, you, you're, you're constantly wondering whether the person you're talking to is real or or not. Um, it, it's it's the opposite of of you know the the cool interaction that that the, I think it was designed to be. So yeah, I think I think you got to you're onto something. It, the instant you get a big bureaucracy involved, it turns in, it turns into something um, that's going to be unnatural. Well, Matt, I think. Man, I think the other challenge is I, I was born and raised in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley and spent almost my entire professional career there before uh, escaping. <laughs> um, and 
it, it's it's a really it, it really is like on the now that I'm on the outside looking in, it's a it's bizarre world and and the challenge there is you have technologists and and Silicon Valley really started out as a very libertarian um, uh, had a very libertarian mindset. You had idealists who wanted to use technology to do things that weren't possible before. But as soon as those ideas become corporations, they, they have a responsibility to investors and they have to make money. And mm -hmm. a platform like Twitter that is free, so the users don't pay, um, they got to make money somewhere. And those corporate sponsors, whether they're spending advertising dollars or whatever they're doing, they are risk averse and they're not going to want to associate themselves with an unmoderated uh, wild, wild west. So I think right. Dorsey, you know, I, uh, uh, David, you know, earlier was talking about how you were in the last piece. You were sort of sympathetic to Dorsey. I am very sympathetic to Dorsey because he has to he has had to balance as best as he could the interests of the mission statement, the original mission statement of Twitter, with the interests of corporate advertisers and investors. And it's not easy. And so I, I think the only way to do that is just eliminate the need for a platform altogether. And if everybody becomes their own platform, yeah, does that bring up other challenges? It brings up challenges of identity. How do we validate identity? I'm sure there are ways to do that. How do we, how do we, um, and, and then discovery. Because that was always one of the cool things about things like Facebook and Twitter is people could share. And, you you know, it was almost like reminded me pre-internet days. So I'm probably dating myself, but pre-internet days when the way you found out about new music was you hung out with your friends and listened to their brothers or older brothers or older sisters' albums. And it's right, exactly that way, yeah. right? Um, rather than paid boosts and all these kinds of things. Anyway, I don't want to take up any more time. There's a long line of people behind me, but just some food for thought. No, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a good point. And yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Like once, once you get uh, an executive who, uh, or a bunch of, or a bunch of people who have to make money, then the option of letting the discourse degrade to the point where it's going to scare away advertisers, that's, that's going to disappear right away. So that has to be taken into consideration, but yeah, it's a fine line, right? Um, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the solution would be. Uh, I may, I may want to take this moment to actually invite somebody who might have some ideas about this, though. Is which who is uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, who who is in the room, former uh, Facebook executive and author of Chaos Monkeys, and he's sort of a friend of mine too as well. So, uh, hang on a second, if I can, uh, Antonio, are you there? There he is. Are you there? All right. He should be there, but is not. So I'm, when, when, when he realizes that he's uh, speaking, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring him back. But, uh, but anyway, right. thanks. Thanks, Alex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I just like to leave with is, and maybe some other uh, speakers could jump on this is just what about the concept of letting the users of the platform be the pseudo moderators where they can flag the content that 
they don't like and, you know, social score, whatever you want to call it. But but that takes away the supreme power of the platform to decide what's censorable and what's not. Anyway, I'll leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, all right. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Antonio, are you there? Yeah. Hey, sorry. The, the app crashed when I, whenever I would unmute, but it seems like it's, it likes me now. Yes. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me up. <laughs> no, no, cool. No, no, thanks for coming. Uh, so, so what do you think? Is this a, people some, have brought up some really interesting points. Like, can you, know, would you even, can we even have a platform and avoid some of the content moderation questions that have come up um, with companies like Twitter uh, like, or, or does it have to be something that's, that's essentially like a, a platformless uh, concept going forward that uh, will, that will eliminate some of these problems? Well, I'll, I'll answer that question by partially responding to Alex's point that he just made, which is that, I mean, the users do help moderate Twitter, right? Like, you know, when I was at Facebook and, and to this day, user feedback is actually an input to the takedown algorithms. And so, I mean, the reality is that neither Facebook and certainly not Twitter have the resources to actually hire enough people to actually look at every piece of content that gets posted or even gets reported, right? So a lot of the ML is just inputting um, user feedback, which is why you can successfully take people down by kind of dogpiling them, right? And the machine learning algorithm just says, well, I guess this person's an asshole. Um, but obviously, when it gets to, when right. it gets to touchier issues, right, it does tend to go to what's been called the Supreme Court of Facebook, and I imagine there's some Twitter version of it, um, in which th- there is a juridical opinion, sort of, and an interpretation of of the terms of service. But again, that can be very selective. Um, so, like, I don't know if Matt, because I was in and out of the room where you broached um, the policy announced today around the filming of private individuals. But yeah, it's ama- of, I, I, we didn't really yeah. talk about it, but it's amazing. What do you what do you think about it? I mean, the cynical side of me thinks that this is like anarcho tyranny, right? And this is this is a, a set of policies that are going to be selectively enforced because you know, if, for those who aren't familiar, right? And I guess you know, the new CEO. I mean, although I, I imagine this was decided before the new CEO took office yesterday, but um, the the new policy basically says that you can't. And I don't even understand how this would work in practice, but you can't. And, and if, if your reading of it is different, by all means, correct me. But you can't share sort of video content with strangers without their permission, unless there's some vital public interest, and that's not the exact language, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing, served by posting it, which would presumably mean, you know, documenting truth or journalism or whatever. But of course, what is in the public interest is, is, is the rub, right? Um, um, right. Because in some sense, right, if you want to be a total, you know, extreme crypto libertarian about it, the ability to just like portray truth, like show a video and share it is the most fundamental primitive and like open first amendment style societies. Right. And if suddenly that becomes conditional on that serving some public interest as decided by, you know, a, a closed conference room in Soma, San Francisco, well, it's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite the spirit of, of free speech, even though obviously, as we all know, the, the first amendment doesn't strictly speaking apply to a corporate entity. Um, so I'm a little wary of it. Cause I think it'll be, you know, like everything, right? Like nothing is outright authoritarianism these days. It's all, selective application of rules or selective request for rigor, right? Which is how a sort of soft authoritarian is, sorry, soft authoritarianism tends to work. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry about this in the same way that I worry about YouTube's policies, um, about live streams where they were like extremely selective about which people they would crack down on uh, for showing images of things like uh, people marching with guns or whatever it was. 
and you know sort of magically it, it would be the the independent shooter for the, the the freelancer who sells footage to cbs nbc and abc who gets gets the notice from youtube but the actual companies that use the same footage don't get that notice um that's that's kind of what i'm worried about in this situation too right so right yeah right and there and there is no there's no like journalism yeah exactly right (laughs) right right and so clearly this will be an ad hoc system that tends to favor institutional media right as as you're sort of implying what you say which incidentally is one of the things that was that's was and i think still could be incredibly cool about a platform like twitter they beat the regular media all the time they develop you know the crucial uh, photo, the, the the piece of video, the the information about the, the breaking news story. You see it first on Twitter a lot, um, and so it's not a good thing if we're if we're telling all of these people, uh, you know, we're going to start exerting more control over what essentially is you know can be classified as reporting. I mean, that's only one element of this, but I worry about that too. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for, forgetting about the dueling culture war nature of it, just as a product decision, it seems pretty sucky. Because as you said, my first stop when any sort of breaking news happens is going to Twitter, right? And if that's going to suddenly be subject to some sort of murky journalistic process, I don't know. Matt, look, this is just the ceiling of the oligarchy between <laughs> Twitter and corporate media. So I don't totally believe that. I, I suspect it's probably a lot more incompetence rather than malice. But um, right, right. yeah, but yeah, well, I think we'll this see. is going to blow up in their faces, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, uh, let's, 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 uh, take, take a, a call or two. You, you up for that? Yeah. Sure. Let's see. I think Andrew's up next. Andrew, you there? No. Okay. Greg, maybe. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Awesome. Awesome. So, so many amazing comments and, and threads and trains of thought to follow here. You know, I'm, I don't want to take up a boatload of time going through every single brilliant idea, but I definitely followed people who had them, and there are some amazing things here. A uh, little bit of background on me. I actually uh, am a founder at a company that builds uh, open source infrastructure for crypto companies for, that are trying to do uh, Web3 type stuff. So I have a little bit of background, but I, I wanted to ask a specific question. Does, does anybody remember the... Uh, you know, the moment when there was sort of this giant cry out for uh, free speech does not mean free reach. Um, it, it seemed to me like there was a major shift in the way the algorithms uh, you know, promoted content or at least seeded it such that it might take uh, interest from people at that point in time that, that seemed to shift all of this stuff. It seemed at that point we almost got into a, um, you know, you have to band together with your uh, algorithmic brethren and say the same things as loudly as possible. Otherwise uh, you, you stand no chance of breaking through, you know, and, and a lot of these censorship things that happen, you know, like Alex Jones was, you know, clever at getting through the filter, uh, you know, by himself somehow. And that was pretty much what you said about Donald Trump as well. I, I thought that was pretty spot on, but, you know, I, I guess my question is, you know, how much of this, uh, you know, the situation have we sort of created for ourselves in terms of a, in terms of a, um, you know, really not so much what the message is, but uh, who the messengers are and and um, you know, uh, who controls that message. You know, it, it feels a lot more like um, 
sort of the the legacy media getting its um, its greatest wish here in in tamping down on you know, you know what was essentially the coming home of the Arab Spring concept, right? They, they didn't really want this platform, uh, and and we had to change it some. I think the first blow might have been the end of free reach, and I wanted to get a concept from an insider on that, uh, or a take from an insider on that, Antonio. If you have any thoughts on that, I. I- I do, unless Matt wants to go first. I don't want to. I don't want to crash your party. No, you, yeah, you, you so, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think you're right to point it out, Greg. Right? Like everyone was applauding the whole Arab string thing and the fact that social media, you know, subverts elites until the elites being subverted were ours, right? And then, <laughs> then suddenly, social media didn't seem so golden anymore, right? And and yeah. and I think the the quote that you cited that I think reached its apex, like in 2017 or 18, although people still echo it, which is this business of free, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of reach, which is only slightly less midwit than like pointing out the fact that, yes, indeed, the First Amendment doesn't apply to private corporations. We understand that. Um, (laughs) But it's like, so what you're saying is you don't want corporations to follow our most deeply held values. You're arguing against that. Like, I get it. They're not legally required to do that. But it's intriguing that you're arguing against that, right, in the same sense, you know. So it's obviously a disingenuous argument. And the, the, you know, freedom of reach thing is is equally so, right? Because uh, I, I, again, like, you know, the, the public square is not me walking into literally Union Square in San Francisco and saying a thing. It's get, it's being heard. Right. And that, you know, that, that in, in real life, that expression is many things. It's TV ads. It's Facebook pages. It's whatever it is. Right. So reach to me is an intrinsic part of speech. <laughs> Without reach, there is no speech. You're just shouting in an empty room. Who cares? Right. And, you know, and then the, obvi- the thing to obviously point out is that everyone who makes that right. point, right, if it was sort of their side that wasn't getting reach, would, of course, be sitting there gesticulating at, you know, the First Amendment, like Moses pointing at the tablets, right? I mean, it's, it's obviously a completely hypocritical and disingenuous argument. So I don't buy it, right? I, I basically just don't buy it. And, it, and just in, in, in its operation, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like, again, right. at this point, there is things like content moderation, and it's all kind of squirrely and complicated. But if we rewound three or four years, right, these algorithms just take user engagement, whatever it is, and boost it. That's what they do, right? There isn't some deep, dark, malevolent force. So those who say, who want to cut down reach are basically saying, well, the voice of the people, so to speak, to the extent that these algorithms in some sense are sort of condensed, you know, real-time democracy, that their output shouldn't be acceptable. And there should be in some sense, some form of gatekeeping, whether from Facebook or whatever, saying, no, you shouldn't boost this content. Right. And yeah, that's not necessarily a bad argument. Right. I mean, there's there's completely good faith arguments right. in political science about what is too much democracy. Do you have, you know, referendums for everything or do you have more representative democracy? Like, I'm not saying it's like wrong think, but let's just I mean, people who say that, let's just be clear. You're trying to assert a certain level of elite editorship or gatekeeping on what is otherwise unfettered speech. Right. Just call for what it is and don't use the sort of squirrely language to say, oh, no, no, no it's still free speech. I mean, right. it, in my opinion, it, it isn't so. Right. And it tends to be your point of view, right? That ends up right. getting argued for. Like you're, you're not saying, uh, I want bad things to go away. You're saying the things that I think are bad things need to need to have reduced reach. And that, you know, it ends up being this sort of thing where what they, what they really are asking for is, you know, a decay rate on the reach of everybody else, but me, um, the sort of, the, right, right. It's like, it gets applied by default. Yeah. It's like Kevin Roos, who's a, He's a, a tech reporter in the New York Times. I, I don't know if he still does this. I, I, I think I've tuned him out. Or, or the algorithm has figured out that I find him ino- uh, kind of obnoxious when he does this. But, like, <laughs> he would constantly post like the top 10 best doing posts from Crowd Tangle Data or whatever on Facebook. And inevitably, it would be, I don't know, like four or five things from Ben Shapiro, one from that Dan Bongino guy or whatever, a few from Fox News. 
And then the precious New York Times and Washington Post would be like number nine, if at all, in the top 10. And he would just post that, that data. Like that is just a statement of fact. And he would post it as if it was this like incredibly hard hitting criticism. I never quite understood what, what are you getting by saying this? I don't know. Maybe the New York Times would suck I, I, less. I think, I think <laughs> have better engagement metrics. I don't know. What does this mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think what I think what he's trying to say with that is uh, see the conservatives complain about suppression of conser- of conservative media, but actually these these platforms, you know, they're implying that they they help the Shapiro's of the world, uh, right? Isn't that the implication? I, I think. Well, I think that's one of them, and and I certainly think that you know I think conservatives who claim that the entire tech world is you know lined up against them again, you, you look at. Ben Shapiro's engagement, he's built like a, you know, who knows how many million dollar business on Facebook. Like, it, you know, if, if Facebook is actually actively squelching Ben Shapiro, they, they're certainly doing a very bad job at it, right? Because he's right. going to do very well right. on the platform. So I, I, right. can, I can see that, well, that angle of it. But I think there's, there's more to it than that. Because every time you post that, he gets like tens of thousands of likes. I think it's people really saying, no, Ben Shapiro should not have the number one post on Facebook for months on end. That should just, we should live in a world whose moral order is such that right. Ben Shapiro is not number one on Facebook. That's what they're saying. Right. He should have he should have the fault, the uh, risk of getting lost in the white noise of everything everybody else is saying every time he hits send, just like everybody else. Like instead of right. free speech can't be free reach or doesn't mean free reach. It should be the opposite. Like, we really want to see things go back to the way they were. The algorithms will give us what they want or what we want to see only if, uh, you know, everybody has a fair chance of getting on screen. You know, and if you if you do have a fair chance of getting on screen, then. Uh, you know, people saying original things or unique things rather than parroting a message, you know, in the, you know, the hope and likelihood that this will be the only message people see because they're trying to gain the algorithm and, you know, uh, commit an act of, uh, you know, propaganda indeed by parroting the same message over and over again, uh, you know, like there's part of some kind of crusade rather than uh, trying to say something interesting and fun to engage with people. And I feel like it just incentivizes the wrong behavior. Right. I mean, that, I mean, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? I mean, Ben, I, I've actually interviewed him and like, you know, he's, he's this, you know, just to be blunt, he's, you know, he, I don't think he'd object to this characterization. He's like this nerdy, you know, Orthodox Jew who somehow has this mass appeal to everyone, right? And somehow he's just cracked that nut and he has an appeal that lots of other mainstream elite media sources don't have. I mean, I, I think sometimes I try to take the more charitable take on these conversations because otherwise your life just becomes a world of, of pain and cynicism and negativity, right? Oh, right. And yeah. I think no, it's, I think one it's of the legit concerns here, and I, and I think it is legitimate, and even I, as someone who's worked in, in, inside the beast, would express this, is that, you know, the internet and social media is like a consensus and narrative destruction machine, right? What used to be, you know, the, the sort of you know, it, it's like, it's like that saying, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful, which is a famous saying inside stats, right? All, all, all narratives are, are wrong, <laughs> yeah. right? But some are useful. You need some model of the world to navigate the world, particularly in a country of 330 million people on an entire continent with four time zones. You, you need some narrative of the world. And obviously it's flawed. And obviously you can go back right. and rewrite histories and show that it was dumb, clearly, but we need a narrative, right? And the internet has just completely fucking torpedoed that. Right. And now we're in this narrative chaos in which everyone's trying to like coalesce a thing, but yet, you know, the, the original political structures right. that have governed society either my way or autonomy, no other middle road. Yeah, right, exactly. So, I, no, so again, I so at some level, I see the concern. Like, I'm not, I'm not totally opposed to Roos and, oh. and the problems that he's saying. <laughs> I'm not being a critic here. I'm actually just posing a question. I think is kind of interesting. Um, I, I, if you wanted, if you wanted to, you know, my quick plug for it, I think the solution is community ownership. Honestly, I think uh, people own their own data. They own their own communities. Uh, you know, they have an incentive to curate their own communities such that the content there is good. And like, um, 
there's a neat platform called, yeah, called Den Social that I really like their model for how they do it. But they're using sort of the, the crypto world to uh, to flip the script in terms of how platforms monetize, right? It's not so much a platform monetization process as it is a protocol for monetizing good content, uh, which, which I think is a Yeah, I mean, the, the, other, the other solution to this, just to turn on my web nerd hat for a second, is obviously Web3 and crypto, right? If we had Balaji in the room, he would say, you know, um, Web3 networks in which you have a shared token and a shared community is one way for the user to actually own their data, own some of the upside, and actually kind of own a piece of the rock rather than just be a passive sheep. But anyway, I don't necessarily take the conversation right. down that rabbit hole. Well, I'm with you. I'm kind of actually with that. But yeah. <laughs> you know, like, Federated is also probably But I'll, I'll stop talking now because I'm, I'm bogart. <laughs> no, that's all, it's all interesting. Definitely. Thanks for it. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. let's, let's move Cheers, on guys. to that. And, and thanks for the post, Matt. That was a really well-written one. I, I very much enjoyed it. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much for reading. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see who's uh, who's who's next. Uh, James, I think. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey, Matt. Uh, huge fan of uh, the writing. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, and also, I just wanted to plus one what uh, Antonio and Greg were saying. I've kind of independently, I guess, arrived at the same conclusion that. I guess, like, at the end of the day, as long as, you know, Twitter owns the servers or Facebook owns the servers, uh, that uh, you, you will just sort of end up in the same world. You kind of can't prevent that. Uh, but I'll, I'll take my question in a, in a different direction. I, I, mine is just that um, I, I felt that, like, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all these platforms, they, they, they sort of start to feel kind of similar, I guess. And they all seem like they're kind of asking the same question or trying to solve the same problem right now. Like, how do you solve this like censorship uh, thing? And I'm just curious, like, uh, you know, I guess it, what I'm saying is it seems kind of weird. Like Jack Dorsey, you know, is a very different guy than Mark Zuckerberg or who, you know, who are different from the founders of YouTube. And it's kind of, it's just kind of interesting that all of these platforms have sort of found their way to the same place and seem to be solving like a or, you know asking similar questions. So I'm curious about what you think about that kind of similarity, and um, I well, like uh, you know kind of after that, like what what if you think there is some kind of you know, like if you think you could define some kind of endpoint where you know if you're a person like right now where you would say like oh I'm in favor of I'm in favor of like removing these posts because uh, like I think it'll get this change. Like, is there some, could anybody name, like, one place or define one place that's like, okay, if we had this, like, these platforms would be okay. Uh, so I'm just kind of, I've just been wondering about that. Like, could you even, is it even possible, like, kind of define that? Uh, or whether it's sort of like a, you know, constantly reducing yeah, uh, problem or just ends, like, I don't know, total control or whatever. Yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that. That's yeah. That's that's an interesting. B b both of those questions are, are interesting. I think, I, uh, Antonio, if you don't mind, I'll take the the first one and, and tell me if I'm incorrect about this. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that all these companies are kind of in the same place talking about the same problem. I think that was uh, a question that was really foisted upon them uh, after 2016 when you saw all of them dragged onto the hill. Uh, over and over again, uh, and asked, you know, to essentially, you know, he had senators demanding that they come up for 
plans for the uh, to end the sowing of discord or Russian disinformation or whatever it was. And this, I, I took a bunch of companies that had never really uh, expressed much of an interest in going in that direction. And in fact, uh, you know, prior to that, you had people like Zuckerberg who had o- openly said that that was, they were not going to be in the business of doing that. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, it, it was made clear to them that that, that was not going to be acceptable, that they were going to have to be in the, you know, in, in the content moderation business in a much more uh, extreme way than they had ever conceived of previously. Uh, so I, I think they were kind of forced into this situation. Um, you know, you had people like Senator Mark Warner who had drawn up this big white paper full of new regulatory measures that he was ready to slap on. Um, on these companies, if they if they didn't go along with the overall uh, narrative of you know something has to be done about all of this fake content, um, and I I guess my answer to the second thing would be, um, you, you know, we worked really hard in this country before the internet for centuries to avoid any kind of solution that looked like a a national media regulator uh, where you would have some kind of entity that would be responsible for deciding what was true and what was not, um, what was harmful and what was not, and what was allowed and what was not. We we had a completely different method for dealing with that. It was litigation-based. It was situational. Uh, it was based on situations, and we didn't end up with some kind of star chamber that was sorting through, uh, you know, content. Obviously, there was a lot less of it when you just had ma- you know media to deal with. But I don't know, Antonio. What do you what do you think about this? I I just think that whatever the solution is, you can't have it be some kind of behind a you know a, a, a conference room wall, a corporate star chamber uh, of experts you know, pouring through the Torah of whatever the terms of service are, are, are and deciding what is and is not allowable content. I just don't think that's going to work um, personally. Yeah. I mean, my very unpopular opinion that I stopped yelling approximately 2018 because it was driving me crazy was that, I mean, there, there is no content moderation solution. I mean, some people will say this occasionally like um, Stamos of the Stanford Internet Observatory, formerly a, a head of security at Facebook, has, has said more or less as much in tweets, but there is no solution, right? It, AI is never going to get good enough to unambiguously actually do this at the scale of Facebook. Wait, here, here's one piece of wrong thing that I think people who haven't worked in it, and I know it sounds like an appeal to authority, but whatever. Un- unless you've actually worked inside the machine internet scale, you just don't understand the size of it. What it is to, ha- I mean, Facebook is just like a quarter to a third of the internet in the entire globe, right? We're talking 4, million people on the, 4 billion people on the internet right now. Um, you know, a, a large fraction of whom are Facebook users, right? The number of photos and posts on Facebook on a given day is just mind-boggling, right? The thought that anybody's going to actually police that in any sort of adequate, um, you know, or consistent way, not just in the U.S., which is what we tend to obsess over, but occasionally you get the story of like, oh, in Myanmar and El Salvador or whatever, some weird shit happened and Facebook didn't stop it. There's never going to be a solution to it. I mean, I hate to break it to people and they, they don't seem to want to accept this answer. There is no solution. Right. Like even in the U.S., it would take something like the Chinese hiring what's reputed to be something like literally a million people to police the other, you know, 999 million, right, 24-7 to even get to some level of like ideological consistency. Not that I'm saying we should do 
that, but I'm just I'm just looking at it as like as a product problem. How do you solve this? I don't think it's possible to solve. Right. Well, yeah, and, and that, we we don't necessarily have to accept the idea that it, that it's a problem that has to be solved, do we? I mean, like, I mean, I, I, right, I, well, right. I, 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 yeah, yes. my view, which again is also extraordinarily unfashionable, is that you know the American standard of Brandenburg v. Ohio, which is the hate speech standard, which I know is not what Europe has, but it's still a pretty high bar. Like it has to be imminent lawless action. Like you literally have to like be calling for the death of somebody. That's the standard. And short of that, yeah, I, I don't know that things should be moderated. But anyhow, that's not reality. That's that's not the political reality right now. So who like who cares what my opinion is? But. Um, well, no, I, I think you're right, though. I mean, I think that I think that's we, we got to get to the place where people. I mean, I agree with you. I, I I don't think it's I don't think the 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 problem is solvable, and perpetuating the idea that it is is what's getting us to these more and more extreme solutions. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I I mean the the whole I don't want to call it a grift because it's an overused word and I think it's slightly uncharitable. But whatever you call like the whole misinformation industrial complex, like all these experts with academic appointments. And, you know, what you find curiously common among all of them is that none of them have ever actually worked in any of these companies, which again, doesn't, right. doesn't mean like you have to, to have an opinion obviously often an outside perspective is welcome. Right. But again, that scale issue, I, I don't think a lot of those people really understand that no proposed solution is going to work to the level that we like. And even though, but to your point, Matt, maybe it shouldn't work, right? Maybe that's the point. It's a problem. We don't, we shouldn't be solving. Right, right. Uh, got a, time for a couple more if, uh, if, if we can't hang on a sec. Uh, thank you. Thanks, James. Uh, let's, let's go to, I think it's Lee. No? Lee, are you there? Nope. Okay, let's go to Ross, I think. Michael? Hi, Matt. Hi, Antonio. Uh, big fans of your there columns you and your podcasts. Um, oh, excellent. Thank I, you. I fancy myself a writer as well, uh, my better days. And I'm always been, I've always been fascinated by Dorsey as a, as a literary figure, as kind of a tragic figure. Um, you know, he comes in in 2015, I think, with every intention of carrying on the legacy of Twitter as the free speech wing of the free speech party. And his uh, arrival there uh, happens to coincide with the emergence of a politician uh, in America uh, about whom the elites have a massive freakout. Um, it wasn't just Trump, of course. It was Brexit and a number of other things that convinced elites that things that they had to, uh, you know, crack down or establish some kind of control over the discourse. And I think he's tried to fight that, um, but uh, c clearly. He's had little success, as has Zuckerberg, has had uh, they, who, uh, whoever's in charge of YouTube these days. I, I, I'm from blanking on the name. Um, they've all kind of been forced to succumb because they're they're trapped in a vice of pressure from from both above and below, right? I mean, uh, they're they're getting pressure from above from Washington. They're getting pressure from below from their employee base. That's all, you know, people working in the San Francisco Bay Area who have certain political attitudes and social attitudes that are pr pretty monolithic. And uh, they've not really been able to resist. Uh, we've certainly had statements from both Zuckerberg and Dorsey indicating their desire to keep the free speech mantle going, but I'm not sure what they could have really done. And I'm curious what you think about 
narrowly the timing of Dorsey's resignation, which which is now curious since this announcement on uh, image restrictions comes the very next morning after his resignation. And also, just in general, do we do we think? I don't want to try to psychoanalyze these two these two men, but it, do we think that Dorsey's uh, departure from Twitter and Zuckerberg's fast pedaling away from both the name and the business model of Facebook uh, recently is an indication that they've they've just had enough of the headaches of trying to uh, trying to satisfy the competing demands of uh, of Washington and the employee base and and others who are telling them they must censor uh, content they'd rather not. Uh, yeah, Anthony, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just quickly say, I, I think my guess is, and I don't, it, actually, Antonio, you'd know this better than I would, but, you know, the tech executives that, that I've known, I haven't known a ton of them, um, they didn't get into Silicon Valley, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't go into that world to be, you know, subjects of a courtier system, uh, you know what I mean? I, I, I think... The idea, the idea of uh, you know working for a gigantic company that is essentially um, you know becoming a quasi policing mechanism that takes a lot of the fun out of uh, you know being a, uh, you know the ruler of a massive corporate entity that is uh, you know rolling in cash but also you know breaking down. Uh, you know, sort of icons and, and narratives and that sort of thing. I, I, I just think it's not a whole lot of fun. They've made it not fun for these folks uh, anymore is my, is my first guess. Um, you know, and one of the things you said before was interesting. You're talking about the pressure from above and below. Uh, it's not just, I, I forgot to mention this before, the, the, it's not just that the, the Senate and people in government um, have put pressure on these companies. I also really blame the people in the news media for embracing these calls for censorship because ultimately, um, you know, this, this will reflect on them. They'll, they'll be the ones who will be uh, eventually under the now the most, right? But they, a lot of the people in this business um, see themselves as, as kind of, uh, gatekeepers first, first and foremost. Like dude, you wouldn't have seen that in the business thirty years ago. That was not necessarily how people perceived themselves so much in the media business. And now I, I think they do, and and they were. I think they're instrumental in in um, applying pressure on these companies to to quote unquote do something uh, and raising that alarm. You know that would Antonio, would you? Uh, put as the uh the disinformation complex industrial complex um a lot of that has to do with people in my business i I blame them for that so but i'd be interested to hear what you what you think antonio i'm I'm always here to blame tech journalists for everything that (laughs) they're they're definitely the source of most evil when it comes to tech um yeah i mean i i I don't know jack in the twitter world that well i I know zuck in his circle a little bit better obviously i i do think matt that you're right that like Almost universally, techies don't get into it for the sake of the political side of it. I mean, one one source of pressure, at least on Facebook, that I think is probably pretty significant. It's not just from like, you know, outside press, like Facebook, right? And and I guess I think this is even more true when I was there. And it's probably still true now. You know, the external world is external, right? If you're inside this corporate culture, inside this massive campus, you live inside a 
a bubble, right? And you can, and, and you view the, the external world at an arm's distance. What you can't hold at an arm's distance is your own employees and the own internal culture, right? And so from what's been leaked and from, you know, what I've heard secondhand, you know, the all hands inside Facebook have turned into <laughs> pretty embattled, right? Not to mention the famous whistleblower Francis Hogan and all the rest of it, which again, taking it back to my, to my days would have been inconceivable that there'd be this many leaks or even the notion of like a public overt whistleblower, right? And so I think watch, watching that internal political, that, sorry, that internal employee culture kind of crumble in light of the political pressure, I suspect is probably what keeps Zucker maybe even jack up at night. More than like, they're used to taking shots from, you know, car swisher and whatever all the time, right? Like that's, that's just the cost of doing business. But I think the, the internal erosion of the culture, I think, yeah, might be part of the reason why, you know, Zuck is focusing on meta and, and, and the metaverse stuff, um, possibly more. Um, yeah. That, that, yeah. that my theory yeah yeah well I, whatever the tech version of going off to write your novel is like that uh, <laughs> right that, that's the, what the, they're other, gonna do. the other thing i would say i don't know if Matt, you're going to bring it up yet but obviously we're talking about jack as if he's still the twitter ceo he's not as of 48 hours ago and um one thing in terms of resisting internal pressure right like one thing that's pretty universal in tech companies is the founder has a magic and non-transferable influence right like that and, you know, and Twitter story is a little bit convoluted, right? Because Jack was actually on the outs for a while and it was Evan Biz and then he was back in. But whatever, there's a certain magic to being a founder inside a tech company. That's true in all tech companies, not just Twitter, Facebook, like even other companies, you know, random companies I've worked for. And I, that's that can't be replaced, right? And so if there really is an internal dynamic in which employees are saying, no, 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 pushing for more, more wokeness or more content moderation or more that, I think a new CEO, you know, and I don't know this fire guy at all, you know, I think he's going to be a lot less able to push back and say, no, we're going to stick to this particular, you know, philosophy of free speech or whatever. So I imagine there's going to be a lot more turmoil going forward. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, all right, I, got, yeah, I think it gets worse from here, unfortunately. And, uh, and one of you made the comment that there's no badge for journalism. I think you're right, Matt, that the legacy media thinks there ought to be. And they ought to be the sole uh, holders of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thanks a lot, thanks, Michael. Guys. Pre- appreciate it. All right. I got time for one more. I got the, my, my kids are knocking on my door. But um, Antonio, you're ready right for one more? Sure, of course. Uh, okay, here we go. So I think Steve, maybe, is next. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You guys actually, uh, and we're talking about my, my question, as you called it. Oh, no. I was, <laughs> I was curious about uh, pretty much how the, the, the selection of the new Twitter CEO and, and just how monumental that kind of can be. And given that he's coming from, you know, the, the engineering side rather than the, you know, this, what was seemed to be the CEO in the waiting and the, the guy that's always making the, the CFOs, making all the appearances on all the talk shows um you know it, it just and then his first move is obviously to to you know send out that uh that notice that was talked about before so i'm just curious to know what the the future holds in in terms of this you know uh, seemingly pretty unknown guy to the to the corporate world other than the, the small sphere of um big tech um and just what that means for the future of, of twitter and you know because i, I I think that Twitter really leads the the moderation because as you guys were talking about before, everything drops there first. So, you know, whether you come down with the Hunter Biden story or any of these other breaking stories, it's always on Twitter first. So their move is 
you know, the, the lead cattle? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know what else is on the table in terms of what kind of moderation ideas that they're, they're thinking about. Um, but you know, something like this idea of, uh, using, uh, an, uh, an expanded harm standard, uh, to go after images and content, um, it, it's just unimaginable how how much that can affect something like I don't know the midterm elections next year or a presidential election in twenty twenty four. I mean, they it's really to me uh, understated how much of a big deal it was when uh, that Hunter Biden story happened. No, no matter how unimportant or important you think that story was just the fact that they inter they they clamped down on it set a precedent that now they can do that with all kinds of things and it's actually kind of a an expectation of a media consumer these days that you may or may not be seeing um everything that would organic normally organically be appearing on your twitter feed um and so, yeah, I, 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 I really worry. I, I, I think that um, I, I, I worry that it's, it's just going to become much more sanitized and much more, um, much less free flowing uh, than before, which took away, again, one of the things that was so interesting about Twitter, which was that it was irrepressible. It was an irrepressible source of on the ground information that you just couldn't control. And um, it seems to me like th th that they're going after their their own core functionality, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But uh, I don't know. Antonio, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I have a few reactions there. I mean, first, this video, as I think you mentioned, right, the, this guy is very, is very technical. And I, I don't know him, but I, I have heard stuff secondhand. He's a he's a very smart, accomplished engineer. He's a, he he's one of the few people to go from an IC contributor role to like a distinguished engineering role at Twitter. And so he's, he's very much a gifted engineer and it's, it is kind of unusual, I guess, that he would become CEO in that, you know, at least Twitter doesn't seem like an, such an engineering first culture as perhaps Google or, or Facebook are. Um, so, but which I, I don't know to answer the question, does that mean he's going to be more or less political or less able to navigate these waters? I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it's, I don't know. Here's my, the here's my theory, right? Here's one macro theory, right? Is that maybe, look, I think incumbents never lose their incumbency, right? Like window, you know, Microsoft never lost a desktop. Google has never really lost search. Um, and so you don't really unseat people from that or they don't really necessarily change. You simply have modes of communication or, you know, te technical areas of expansion that are just different, right? Um, and I don't know, it might be time to switch the Twitter model of everyone being on there, right? Like literally everybody in the political spectrum of it being moderated by a central chain of command. Um, that, that may not be the, the future going forward, right? Like I know I spend as much or more time inside like private signal or WhatsApp groups than I, than I do even on Twitter. Right. And I think the future looks a lot more like that at, at some level of scale than, than the current Twitter. Like not, not that I think Twitter is going to go away in the same way that Microsoft word hasn't gone away, but I just think a lot of human intention and effort, and scope will just be spread on other things. And I, I sound like a Web3 shill, but I think there's some other version <laughs> of Twitter that, that, you know, is another world is possible. That's not, I guess, the Twitter I, we've I've been, I've been spending a lot of time on Colin, and that, that works just fine for me. 
Well, there you go. Right. And obviously I'm a fan of it. I've also got a show. I think, I think social audio is super cool and interesting. And yeah, like I said, you know, is there, you know, whatever, like the, whatever the, you know, the 5% that you were spending on Twitter spaces or like engaging with Twitter, you're going to spend that on Colin instead. And then some web three version of it and yet some other thing and whatever. And Twitter's always going to be there. It's always going to be, I think the central point of conversation for sort of textual media and for a lot of elite conversations, but it's not necessarily going to be like center court forever. Yep. That's a, all excellent points. Um, I think I think I gotta wrap this up because I'm I'm on daddy duty now. But uh, Antonio, thanks so much for coming by, and uh, this was this was really interesting. Thank you, thank you so much, everybody, for uh, for coming to listen. And sorry uh, for those of you who are waiting for to, to, to ask questions, didn't get a chance. But uh, we'll, we'll hopefully I'll get to you next time. So uh, thanks very much, and uh, talk talk to you again soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having right. me crash your party. All right. take, no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> never. All right, thanks a lot, Antonio. Take care now.